This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 278, entitled, What Sort of Preexistence is in the New Testament? Now, this week's episode will build off of our previous exploration in episode 277, where we laid out evidence from several Jewish texts that demonstrates different ways in which the Jews categorize the concept of preexistence. We noticed that often the Jews would describe preexistence as something that is within the purposes, plans, and the mind of God. We're going to call that option A. We also observed that Jews would describe preexistence as a personified attribute, specifically when referring to the personified word of God, that is the personified creative utterance and speech of God, and also God's personified wisdom, that is the personification of God's wise interaction with and instruction to his creation. So we'll call that sort of preexistence, that is the preexistence of word and wisdom, option B, because it's slightly different than preexisting in the purposes of God. A personification is not the same thing as something in God's plans. And third, we saw literal preexistence. That is something that actually is in existence prior to creation. We're going to call that option C. Now, since the subject of preexistence absolutely requires asking the question, what type of preexistence do you mean? It is important for us that we approach the New Testament documents with the very same question. It doesn't do us any good to say that either the New Testament teaches preexistence or it doesn't teach preexistence. We need to discern what sort or sorts of preexistence that each author might presuppose and, on the flip side, what sort of preexistence is absent from the New Testament. So this episode will survey... We can't go into all the text, obviously, but so we're going to survey some of the New Testament authors in order to ascertain what types of preexistence that they teach. Do the New Testament authors presuppose the preexistence of Jesus? And if so, which option of Jewish preexistence can we observe in their writings? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. The first passage we'll look at today comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I think we'll just go in order. We'll start in Matthew and just work our way down the line. So Matthew, of course, has a conception Christology. In Matthew chapter 1, he has a genealogy, and Matthew indicates in a few of these verses that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David, who has been brought into existence through the miraculous work of God intervening 
and creating Jesus in the womb of Mary. He also places Mary at the end of a long line of descendants, stemming all the way back to David and then all the way back to Abraham. So Matthew does have a conception Christology. Jesus is conceived. He is brought into existence at the moment of his birth. But specialists on the Gospel of Matthew have also discerned a wisdom Christology in Matthew. Now, we can't look at all the passages, but I want to look at one that seems to be very interesting. So in Matthew chapter 11, starting in verse 2, the narrator tells us that now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, that is, said to Jesus, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? That's Matthew 11, verses 2 through 3. The question is, are you the expected one? Are you the one who is coming? Are you the coming one, or should we look for someone else? Now, a few verses later, Jesus is talking about the deeds of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist was criticized and rejected, and then he's going to talk about his own deeds. But look at the wording that he does here. This is in Matthew 11, verse 19. Jesus says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. That's Matthew 11, verse 19. Now, we have to see exactly what Matthew is doing here. Remember, John the Baptist heard of the works of Christ. And he asked the question, are you the coming one? Jesus responds by saying that he, the Son of Man, came. Remember, John's asking if he's the coming one. And when he's talking about his own works, he says that wisdom is is vindicated by her works. So Jesus, in talking about his own deeds, his own behavior, he describes it in terms of wisdom, personified wisdom, wisdom personified as a female who has her own works and deeds. Jesus speaks as if he is wisdom. So John is asking about the works of Christ, and Jesus responds by talking about the works of wisdom that vindicates her her. And so, as Jesus claims to be the Son of Man who came, he seems to identify himself and understand himself as the embodiment, or dare I say, the incarnation of wisdom. But since wisdom is a personification, this is not a conscious, literal preexistence. That would be option C. This is the preexistence of one of God's attributes, God's wisdom. That's option B. And that's not a literal preexistence. That's the preexistence of a personification. So Matthew seems to have a conception Christology, and he also has a wisdom Christology. Let's look at the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 6, we have another interesting passage, which maybe, possibly, gives evidence that Mark also possesses a wisdom Christology. So check out this passage. Mark chapter 6, verse 1 says, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. 
When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. It's Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. So Jesus is doing a lot of great things. He's doing a lot of great teachings. He's performing many miraculous signs and wonders. And so in his own hometown, the listeners are asking these sort of critical questions. And they ask, where did he get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And what are these miracles as such performed by his hands? They want to know who Jesus is and where is he getting his empowerment? Now, we have this second question here where they ask, at least as the NASB translates it, what is this wisdom given to him? So if it's translated that way, they recognize that Jesus possesses wisdom and it's been given to him, but they want to understand a little bit more about this. What is this wisdom that has been given to Jesus? They don't deny the fact that Jesus is the bearer of God's wisdom. They just want to know what sort of wisdom this is. Now, if you look in the Greek of this passage, the interrogative pronoun, which in Greek is tis, can be translated as it has in the NESB here, what is this wisdom given to him? But it could also be translated as a pronoun. Who is this wisdom given to him? And since the question of the interrogative deals with the subject of wisdom, which is grammatically feminine, it's very much possible that Mark intended the question to be, who is this wisdom given to him? Now they're not asking simply about wisdom as a concept, but now they're looking at wisdom as a personification, as the personification of God's wise interaction with his creation. So does Mark have a wisdom Christology? My answer is maybe, possibly. There are other texts in Mark that might give this indication, but I wanted to point this out. Regardless of how we translate that interrogative pronoun, it is abundantly clear that wisdom has been given to him, whether that wisdom is a who, namely a personification, or a what, a thing or concept. Jesus possesses wisdom, and the listeners of Jesus' sermon in the synagogue of his hometown do not deny the fact that Jesus is in possession of the wisdom of God. So that may suggest that Mark, like Matthew, possesses a wisdom Christology. Let's move to the Gospel of Luke. Now Luke has this interesting passage that has a parallel with Matthew where he describes God's wisdom talking. So in Luke chapter 11, verse 49, Jesus says, For this reason the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of them they will kill. That's Luke eleven forty nine. So Jesus tells us that the wisdom of God is speaking, so that clearly is a personification of the wisdom because now this attribute of God is now portrayed as talking, and not only talking, but sending prophets and apostles that are going to be rejected. So Jesus says that God's wisdom said, I'm going to send prophets, 
and some of them they are going to kill. Now, in the parallel in Matthew's version, in Matthew 23, 34, we have some very interesting connections. In Matthew's version, Jesus says, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill. It's Matthew 23, verse 34. Did you catch the connection there? In Luke's version, Jesus says, the wisdom of God said, I will send prophets, some of them you will kill. In Matthew's version, Jesus speaks on behalf of wisdom, and he says, I, in the first person, send you prophets, some of them you will kill. So Matthew and Luke seem to indicate that Jesus is God's wisdom. He's the embodiment of God's wisdom. But Luke portrays it in the sense of wisdom speaking. Matthew portrays it as Jesus himself speaking. Luke, of course, like Matthew, possesses a conception Christology. Luke 135 abundantly indicates that the Son of God came into existence. He was begotten because of the miracle of the birth, the miracle of the Spirit creating the Son of God. So Luke possesses a conception Christology, and he possesses a wisdom Christology. Let's move to John. Well, John, of course, talks a lot about the beginning and Jesus coming down from heaven, and interpreters have tried to make sense of these passages in a variety of ways. Some people are quite turned off by this sort of language, and they say it's not possible for Jesus to have meant that literally, but we're asking the question, what would these statements potentially mean when we interpret them in light of the different ways that Jews would talk about preexistence? So the prologue is quite well known. First two verses indicate that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then in verse 2, we have a repeat of that, where it says that he was in the beginning with God, kind of repeating the things that are already in verse 1. So what we have here is God's Word. And I think that the Word here is being personified. We have the word described with masculine pronouns throughout the prologue. And if God's wisdom, a feminine noun, is personified as a she, then certainly God's word, which is grammatically masculine, would be personified as a he. Now, people who don't understand what personifications are will misunderstand this passage, and they will assume that the word is an actual conscious person who was with God, thereby making two persons up there in heaven, at least two, but at least that's what this is talking about. So I think when we look at a passage like this, it seems to indicate option B, the preexistence of one of God's attributes, namely personified word or personified wisdom. And it's very important to understand that by the first century, the concept of God's personified word was basically synonymous with the concept of personified wisdom. We have several texts that indicate this particular point. We have hundreds of examples of God's word and God's wisdom being used in the writings of Philo. We also have the evidence from Wisdom of Solomon. We even have from the book of Proverbs the fact that God's personified wisdom is closely associated with the words of God's mouth. So it's important to keep that in mind that when John was writing this prologue, 
he was taking concepts about God's preexistent wisdom, but describing them in terms of God's word. Because to say that the word became flesh makes much more sense with Jesus being a male figure. He could have just said wisdom became flesh, and there are some instances of wisdom becoming flesh prior to the Gospel of John, but it made more sense in the Gospel of John by portraying Jesus as the spokesperson of God's words to describe this personification as word rather than wisdom. Now, this doesn't mean that personified wisdom is completely absent from the Gospel of John. I'll give you another passage. So, in John chapter 6, we have the discussion of the breaking of the bread and the fish, and that leads to a question of manna that came from heaven, and Jesus, of course, interprets this in terms of himself as the present life-giving activity of Israel's God. Jesus says in John 6.33, For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. That's John 6, 33 through 35. So Jesus is saying that I, with the emphasis there, I am the bread of life, namely the bread of life that comes down out of heaven. Now some people say that this seems to be a literal descent. Some people think that no, to come down out of heaven just simply means it's a gift. Now, those aren't mutually exclusive. Of course, if God sends an angel, then the angel could be considered a gift from God. I'm not saying that Jesus is an angel. I'm just saying that those two interpretive options aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. But when we take this sort of language of God giving bread in a sense that offers nourishment and life, and we put that in its context, we can see that this was the sort of language that educated Jews, who would speculate on such things, would describe in terms of God's personified wisdom. Take, for example, this passage from Philo. In his treatise on the change of names, verse 259, Philo says, God, the only cause and giver, rains down food from heaven without the cooperation of any other person. Now Philo goes on, and he quotes Exodus 16, verse 4, which indicates that the manna came down from heaven. And then Philo explains this verse by saying, Now what nourishment can the scriptures properly say is rained down except heavenly wisdom? That's very interesting. Philo interprets the bread that came from heaven, according to Exodus 16, verse 4, in terms of God's wisdom. What does Jesus say? He says that he is the bread that comes down out of heaven because Jesus understands himself as the wisdom of God that has become flesh, just like the word of God that has become flesh. So I think the Gospel of John has a Logos Christology and a Wisdom Christology. And really, those two things aren't really two separate things. They basically overlap in their meaning and understanding. So John would have option B, preexistence of a personification, not option C, 
the literal conscious pre-existence of Jesus. That's a very important distinction. Now we've done Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let's go to the book of Acts. Now remember, Acts is the second volume of Luke's two-volume work. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And when Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, there are indicators in the Gospel of Luke that he also intended to write Acts immediately after that. So in the Gospel of Luke, we have all of these speeches. One-third of the book of Acts consists of speeches. And even though this particular speech is the speech of Peter, of course, Luke is the author. He's the one that's summarizing these speeches and expressing his own theology in it. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, we see Peter saying, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. That's Acts 2, verses 22 through 23. Why clearly, Jesus was in the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That's option A, that God has plans and purposes within his mind. Now, what's interesting is that Luke is demonstrating option A here, pre-existence in the mind, plans, and purposes of God, and Luke has already, in the Gospel of Luke, demonstrated option B, pre-existence as personified wisdom. And this is why it's important to know that those two options aren't mutually exclusive. It's possible to believe that Jesus pre-existed in God's plan, and it's also possible to believe that Jesus pre-existed as personified wisdom or personified word. But those are not the same things. And we need to make sure that we distinguish them because Jewish pre-existence distinguished those things. But it's possible to maintain both of them. But both of them indicate that something in God's purposes and, of course, pre-existing as a personification. This is not literal, conscious pre-existence. That, of course, would be option C. Now, I've looked at some of the writings of the Apostle Paul and his understanding of wisdom Christology in some previous episodes, but I want to look at Romans because there's an interesting passage in Romans that indicates, like other places, like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, that Paul possessed a wisdom Christology, or he would take things that were formally describing personified wisdom, and he would apply them to Jesus. So look at this interesting passage in Romans chapter 10. So in Romans 10 verse 6, Paul says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That's Romans 10, verses 6 through 8. So Paul offers this kind of interesting metaphorical contrast. Who can ascend to heaven that is to bring Christ down? 
who can descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. It's kind of using these two extremes, going all the way up to heaven or descending all the way down to the abyss and using those extremes to try to find this righteousness based on faith. And of course, he comes to a solution that our search has yielded the result that this word is not very far off. It's not off in heaven. It's not down in the abyss. The word is near to you. In fact, it's in your own mouth and it's in your heart because it's the word of faith. It's the evangelistic gospel that we are preaching. Now, Paul is actually drawing on a Jewish portrayal of God's wisdom. Look at this passage from the Septuagint book, 1 Baruch, in chapter 3, starting in verse 28. So Baruch says, and this predated Paul's letter to the Romans, Baruch said that Israel perished because they had no wisdom. They perished through their folly. Who has ascended into heaven to take wisdom and bring her down from the clouds? Who has gone over the sea and found wisdom and will buy wisdom for pure gold? That's 1 Baruch chapter 3, verses 28 through 30. And you can see what's going on there. This whole point is that Israel has suffered consequences of the exile because, according to Baruch, they have rejected God's wisdom. And then it asks the question, where can we find wisdom? Where is wisdom? And he asks the same sort of questions. He's like, who has ascended to heaven to find wisdom? Now, he doesn't say who has ascended into the abyss, but he says who's gone over the sea. And the sea, sometimes described as the deep in the Hebrew Bible, is sometimes translated in the Greek as the abyss. So it could be understood in a synonym to where the sea is very similar to the abyss. So Baruch asks those questions. He's looking for wisdom. Who has sent her to heaven to find her? Who has gone over the sea to find her? And the answer, of course, is that nobody has found it. But Paul takes this search for God's wisdom and he replaces it with Christ. Because for Paul, Christ is the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 1 Corinthians 1, 30. But for Paul, he doesn't say, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to find wisdom. Paul says, who will ascend to heaven, that is, to bring Christ down. And instead of Baruch, who says that wisdom can only be found by God in the law, Paul says that wisdom is found with the word that is in your mouth, in your heart, namely the word of faith that we are preaching. And then, of course, he says, if you confess Christ as Lord and believe that God raised the dead, that you will be saved. So Paul is taking this passage and he seems to be portraying Jesus in terms of what other Jews were saying about God's wisdom. Because for Paul, Jesus is the embodiment of personified wisdom. This, of course, would put Paul in the category of option B, Jewish pre-existence option B. Jesus pre-existed as personified wisdom. Lastly, we'll look at 1 Peter to get this particular point. So we've looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four different authors. We looked at Paul, that's five authors, and then we'll look at 1 Peter, six authors. 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 introduces Peter as an apostle of Christ. He talks about the recipients of his letter, those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says that they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So Christians, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, exist in the foreknowledge of God. But then he says a few verses later in verse 20 that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. 1 Peter 1.20. So Jesus was in God's foreknowledge, and also Christians were in God's foreknowledge, using the same Greek word, proionosko, foreknowledge. This, of course, is option A, pre-existing in the plans and purposes in mind of God. So we've looked at six different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and 1 Peter, and we've indicated that they believe in two different types of pre-existence. They do believe in pre-existence. What sort of pre-existence? Pre-existence option A, which is in the mind, plans, and purposes of God, and of course, pre-existence option B, pre-existing as personified word and as personified wisdom. But we don't see pre-existence option C, literal conscious pre-existence. It's very important that if we're going to talk about the subject of pre-existence, we need to differentiate these three different types and not just assume that, yes, the Bible talks about pre-existence without further defining what we mean, or no, the Bible doesn't talk about pre-existence when we are thinking of one type of pre-existence while our dialogue partners might be thinking of another type of pre-existence. We have to discuss and nuance the topic of pre-existence much more carefully than the way that we've been doing for the past 200 years. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we discuss the so-called triadic statements in the New Testament, these few passages that actually talk about God, Jesus, and the Spirit all together in the same verse. People look at those and they say, ah, look at there, that's proof of the Trinity. I'm not quite convinced. You might not be either, but let's talk about them and let's say, well, if they don't refer to the Trinity, what actually do they refer to? Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us absolutely for free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review online, and sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer a donation to help keep the podcast on the air, you can check out the episode description for a link to PayPal. Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care.